0: Praise you, Lord. Father, we feel tremendously privileged, Lord, in our hearts tonight. Because, Father, in this day of darkness that we live in, when there is a dearth on the Word of God around the whole world, Father, it's so marvellous to know that we can come here tonight to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly in all knowledge, all wisdom, all understanding. Father, we give you great thanks for giving us the Word of God, that it reveals the mind of Christ to us. Father, I thank you you don't leave your children in darkness or in any doubt as to where they stand with you, but it's clearly laid out for us. Father, we would ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, that you'll challenge each one of our hearts, that we should study to show ourselves approved, workmen having no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. We will pray, Father, tonight that your Holy Spirit may be so upon us Father, both in the delivery and, both, and in the hearing, Father, so that indeed the anointing of the Holy Spirit may be within us, receiving the truth, and Father, quickening us, and Father, doing establishment work within us, that we should be more stable and therefore more effective in our witness for you. Oh, Father, we bless you that we've come to tonight. Thank you for this glorious subject of eternal security. Oh, Father, and it's to you that we give the glory, and it's to you that we give the honour, and it's to you that we give the praise. Thank you, Lord. Just come, Lord, and receive praise tonight. Because we're your servants. We're your creatures. We're your children. And we are living lives to glorify you. Oh, Father, take all that you want from us, Father. We lay our lives down afresh tonight. Father, that our lives should be lived in holiness and all honour before you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Just bless, just bless us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Praise your wonderful name. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Right, we come tonight to the second of three Bible studies on the subject of eternal security. And if you were here last week, uh, I think you will have got a correct perspective on the whole subject. For those who weren't here last week, let me define the correct perspective on eternal security. You remember that we saw that there has to be a correct balance in your view of eternal security. There are two equal and opposite errors. One is to emphasize the past and to ignore the present altogether. In other words, God's done work for us in the past and it doesn't matter how you live in the present. And we saw why that was wrong. The other equal error is to concentrate on the present and to ignore the past. And we saw last week that actually our salvation has two aspects to it. First of all, we've got the calling and the foreknowledge of God, which occurred in the past. But you've also got the present intercessory work for Christ. And it's that and the emphasis of that that's going to lead us through to holiness in our own lives. And we saw last week, by going through numerous passages, that actually it's always the grace of God, the gifts of God, the calling of God, that are used to emphasize and to inspire um, a holiness of life within the Christian believer. Now, we must keep that emphasis in mind as we go on to tonight. Worldliness in the church has not been caused through preaching of eternal security. Oh, that eternal security had been preached! around in the church, far from it. Actually, what has happened is there has been a misunderstanding and a lack of teaching on the whole uh, principles connected with the grace of God. And because of that lack of emphasis, worldliness has come within the body of Christ. Certainly for myself, the passages we went through last week inspired me to greater holiness. When we saw that every sin had to be represented before the, the Father by the Lord Jesus. Every sin I've committed today and every sin that I will commit tomorrow can't be ignored. Jesus has to handle it personally. And to me, the thought of that leads me on to a desire for tremendous holiness within my own life. All right, now we come to number two tonight, and tonight I'm dealing with the positive side of the coin, as far as eternal security is concerned. In fact, we're going to see the principles and some of the texts. I can't go through all the verses. They're well over 90. Some of the verses that actually support the fact that once you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and have been truly born again, you remain secure in your salvation. Next week, I'm going to deal with those verses that apparently say the opposite. There are over 80 of those. All right? Okay, how are we going to deal with it? Well, obviously we can't go through verse by verse. So what I've done is this. I've split the subject up under topics. And you'll find that most of the verses that are on eternal security fit into one of the topics. And then if I outline what the topic says and then see a few verses, you can go through the other scriptures yourself and actually fill them in. All right? Basically, there is a a duality in thought over eternal security. There are those who think that salvation is a work that man does for God. These are the social gospelers, all right? And they go around and you have to earn your salvation. And salvation becomes man's work rather than God's work. On the other hand, you've got those people who believe that salvation is the work that God has done for man. Now, if you are in the former camp, you must believe that actually it's possible to lose your salvation. Because if you actually earned your salvation in any way or if you deserved it in any way and you have to continue earning it and continue deserving it, there is the possibility that you might fail. And if you fail in your work, then salvation will be lost. If, however, and I think it's the majority of Christians... If, however, you believe that um, salvation is a work that God does for man, there's only one possible way that you can lose it. And that is if God fails. And you come to that amazing blasphemy of a statement that if a truly born-again one loses his salvation, it's because God hasn't done his job properly. Or because God has failed in some way or other. Now the question is, which of those is correct? And we saw a verse, uh, a verse last week, and I want to begin on the verse today, found in Ephesians 2, verse 8 and verse 9. You know very well what they are. And let's see what it says there about salvation. Is it a work of God for man or a work of man for God? All right, this is Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. And it says this, For by grace are ye saved. And the word grace is undeserved merit or favor. Undeserved. There's no earning involved in the word. For by grace are ye saved. Through faith. There it is. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And there you've got the use of the word gift. And the the terminology means a free gift. In other words, salvation isn't something that you've earned. It's something that God has given you in toto. He's handed it it straight to you. You'll notice the little word of there, that not of yourselves. It means from the source of yourselves in the Greek. In other words, salvation didn't come out of you or didn't come out of me. It came out of God. Because it came out of God, he handed it across as a gift to me. And what a wonderful gift. I didn't earn it. I certainly didn't deserve it. God hands it to me. And it goes on, verse 9. Not of works. Why? Lest any man should boast. God wants all the glory from it. If I in any way earned my own salvation, I'd have some of the glory. I'd be able to go to God and say, well, we did a good job, didn't we, God? Not at all. God will stand there receiving all the glory. For I who was a sinner, I who was an enemy of God, was reconciled sovereignly by his work. And then, just to emphasize it, verse 10, for we are his workmanship. There it is. He's the one that's created us, just like the potter has created the pot. It's a work of God for man. I love that story that Willie Burton tells about this. And uh, he tells of a, a woman who, in whose house they used to hold meetings. And they used to, she used to have a picture up on the wall. It was called the Rock of Ages, the Rock of Ages. And it was a tempestuous scene. There were storm clouds everywhere. It was pouring with rain and a stormy sea uh, swirling round this cross-shaped rock. And the rock was just about out of the top of the water. And there was a person dressed in white, a woman dressed in white. And she had managed to get two very tenuous handholds on the side of this rock. The rock was slippery and it was wet and there was seaweed growing all the way round. And there she was with her feet still dangling in the waves. Her hair soaking wet and her dress absolutely... Uh, filled with water, you know, absolutely clinging to her body. And she had just managed to cling on, and there was the look of agony as she tried to keep on the rock. And this woman used to look at that and say, well, that's what it is, isn't it? Hanging on. And one day, one day, sitting in front of her fire with this picture directly over it, God began speaking to her. She often used to say of this girl, oh, she said, how my arms used to ache for that girl. How I longed just to hold on for her or to uh, wrap her around with a blanket or take her home and give her a hot cup of tea or something. But she said, oh, no, there she was struggling away. And she was just meditating before the fire. And having a time of fellowship with God. And God just spoke a few words to her. Two scriptures actually. First of all, 1 Peter 1, 1.5. Who are kept by the power of God through faith. Kept by the power of God. And she said, ah, oh, but it's through faith. And then the second scripture came. Hebrews 12 verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He was the one that began our faith and he was the one that finished it. And she said she just felt as if the arms of Jesus were around her, loving her, holding her. And she felt so warm and secure. And opened her eyes and the first thing she saw was this painting. And she knew it was wrong. She knew then in her heart that it was wrong. And they arrived for one meeting and all there was was a clean patch on the wallpaper. (laughs) You know, and they said, well, what's happened to your painting? And she told them of what had happened. And she said, I took it off the wall, I took it outside, and shouting hallelujah at the top of my face, I started smashing it up. Praise God. She said, it wasn't like that at all. We weren't clinging on by our fingertips. We were 20 miles inland. Praise God. And that was a revelation for her. Now, what we've got to see tonight is how do we know we're 20 miles inland, and what should be the result in our lives of knowing that? And I'm taking four basic principles. I've written them up, and I'm going to take uh, each in turn, all right? Now then, these are principles, and they're logical principles. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, you've got to be able to answer these points. You must. And the first one is the omniscience of God. The omniscience of God, all right? Now, I'm not going to prove the omniscience of God. We will do that when we deal with the essence of God one day. But omniscience actually is something that very few Christians deny as far as God is concerned. All Christians, I would say, believe that God is omniscient. Omniscient means all-knowing. He knows absolutely everything, past, present, and future. In fact, it means that there's not one thing at all that he doesn't know. And you know, the Bible says that he knew us before the world was created or founded. Now that means he knew everything about you back then. He knew every day of your life. He knew every problem. He knew all your sins. He knew all your failings without exception. Notice, every one of them. And it was then that he designed salvation. Now, fancy designing a plan when you've got full information at your fingertips. And God designed the plan of salvation with the worst possible person in mind. That's the Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners. Hallelujah. And he designed it with not only Paul in mind, with me. I'm sure I run a very close second. (laughs) And, And with you in mind. And it wasn't a dupe. He knew everything about you. Jesus tells the story of a man who started to build a house and he actually ran out of bricks halfway. The, half the house <laughs> was built and he said, what a foolish man. He, you see, that man made that mistake because he wasn't omniscient. He didn't know everything. He didn't know how many bricks he'd need in the house. And having built half the house, he suddenly finds he runs out. There's no roof on the house, still letting in the rain. Now God is not a foolish man. He's an omniscient being. Hallelujah. And that means that when he started building a house, he knew exactly what it would take. And he designed every single part of it to bring it to perfection. Glory to Jesus. Do you see, he knew me through and through. He knew every sin that I could possibly commit. And he knew every sin I was going to commit. That's why, of course, it says that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, the way some people talk about God, you'd think that a sin had crept up unawares. On God. Don't forget, by the way, unbelief is a sin. It's no worse than any other sin. It's no better than any other sin. To turn your back on God is a sin. By the way, that particular one of unfaithfulness to God is dealt with in 2 Timothy 2.13, where it, say, it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, because he can't deny himself, you see. Now, what, it, what they sometimes give a picture of is a God who was caught out. I sometimes imagine when I hear some people speak that actually the Lord turns around to the Father and says, look what he's done. Look what he's done. (laughs) Who would have imagined that he could have done such a thing? Well, 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 that's it. You know, oh, well, I didn't bargain for that so far, but not at all. You see, that would mean that actually he crept up. This sin crept up unawares of God. Suddenly God turns around and says, I didn't know that was going to happen. I'm so comforted in my own life by the fact he knows everything about me. Salvation had to be made Roger-proof. Hallelujah. (laughs) He knew everything, you see. And nothing was left to chance. Nothing was left open-ended. Knowing all my failings, he said, I think I can manage. I think I can manage that one. I think so. Praise God. Omniscience says that he knows everything and salvation has been given, knowing what you're like. Hallelujah. Now, it's an important principle, all of that. Right next, of course, another aspect of omniscience is this. Apparently, uh, what people who, who believe you can lose your salvation say is that a man can be saved one moment, remain saved for, say, three years, then do something, must be some sin or other, which God, of course, knew about anyway, do something which actually means he's going to spend the whole of eternity in the lake of fire apparently. Now, at the point of salvation, this is a point of information here, at the point of salvation, actually 34 things happen to you instantly. I'm not going to list them all tonight, but I can list them all. 34 things happen instantly. And God does them all to you. Let's take just a few of them, shall we? Do you know the moment, the split second, the millionth of a second that you were saved, the Holy Spirit took you and he baptized you into the body of Christ. That means you came into the body of Christ and were fully identified with it. You became a member of the body of Christ. You became some member, a little finger or a corpuscle or something like that in the body of Christ. That happened to you at the moment of salvation. Praise God. And another thing that happened to you, you were dead on the cross with Christ. His past became your past. You died on the cross with Christ. You were raised in newness of life. That happened at the moment of salvation. You were filled, praise God, with the Holy Spirit. That's the marvellous thing. The Holy Spirit came and indwelt. In Every single one of us, praise God, and stayed inside of us. One glorious thing that Ephesians tells us about is, at that moment of salvation, what happened? What happened? I was taken right through the atmosphere, right through the universe, and was seated with Christ in the heavenlies on the right hand of God the Father. And there, having fellowship with Jesus. And apparently, God did all that knowing full well that three years later, I would be doomed and damned and on my way to the lake of fire. Apparently, that's what happens, you see. And so, in three years' time, when... I do whatever it is that you can do to do that. Apparently, 34 things are then reversed three years later. For example, I then have subtracted from the body of Christ. The member is cut off from the body of Christ. You realise what that says, don't you? That the body of Christ actually is an amputated body. It's got members missing. It's got fingers missing, toes missing. It might have a leg missing or something like that. Such are the ridiculous statements that come from a belief in the fact that one can lose one's uh, salvation. Apparently, you're amputated from the body of Christ. Apparently, you come back to life on the cross, and you come down from the cross. You're kicked out of heaven, and so it goes on. I think that that makes a nonsense of omniscience, God knew all about me. He knew every sin that I'd commit. And listen, if it were possible for me to lose my salvation, he'd never have given me salvation in the first place. Because it makes him a God of utter confusion. In fact, I believe this. I believe if it were possible, God would kill us physically at the point of salvation. Do you believe that or not? I believe that. I think he loves me so much that if this life could cut me off from him, He'd rather I died at the moment that I was saved. And the fact we're still around, my brothers and sisters, and the fact that we are expected to be ambassadors uh, for Christ is actually an indication that we're totally secure, devil-proof, hallelujah, and world-proof. Indeed, that's true. He'd only leave me here if he could trust that I'd be secure. If he, uh, he'd only leave me here if he knew that he could handle me down here on this earth. Well, where are we going? To see that. Romans chapter 8. Praise the Lord. Where else? Romans and chapter 8. If you turn with me to this. Romans 8. And we saw the first part of Romans 8 last time. Romans 8 and 31. We saw 29 and 30 last time, so I won't deal with them again. All right, and here it is. What does it say? More, um, Verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up from, for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Hallelujah. We'll come on to that a little later on. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he asks a whole series of questions, and the answer implied is no to everyone. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one is the answer that's implied in the text. And in this certain things, tribulation, no. You may be going through it. It's not going to separate you. No Distress? No. Persecution? No. Famine? No. Nakedness? No. Peril? No. The sword? No. Hallelujah. As it is written, for thy sake we are all killed. We are killed all the day long. We are slaughtered as, as, sorry, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, says Paul, that neither death, that's not going to cut you off, nor life praise God your life will never cut you off from God nothing in your life is capable of doing it because he's decreed that you're going to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus nor angels and that includes demons nor principalities their higher angels probably including Satan as well nor powers higher angels again nor things present no matter what's coming against you now nor things to come no matter what's going to come against you next week or 10 years time or whenever nor height nor depth nor any other creature hallelujah you may love your dog too much you're not going to lose your salvation because of that you might lose your dog but you're not (laughs) going to lose your salvation praise God (laughs) Nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go on to Isaiah 46. Or back, rather, to Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46. And verse 10. Where we just get this little phrase. Uh, Verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. What's that? That's omniscience. Standing at the beginning, he declares what the end's going to be. And he looked at me and he said, he's going to be saved. Praise God. It's a gift of salvation. There it is. That's omniscience. And the last part then brings us on to number two, the second principle. And here it is, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's what God actually says. He's going to do all his pleasure. And it brings us on to point number two in this whole subject of eternal security, the nature of a gift from God. When God gives a gift... What's it like, that gift that he gives you? What is it? And to see this, we're back in Romans again. All right? So if you turn back with me to Romans and back, I think we'll go to Romans 6 first of all. Romans 6 and verse 23 where we get the word gift again, and we get it emphasised. Now, I'm taking this verse from Romans because I want the word gift out of there. Notice what it says, and there's a contrast here in the text. For the wages of sin is death. What's a wage? It's something you earn. What's a gift? It's something you're given. And they're the two things that are contrasted. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you're going to die. You earn it, and you deserve it, and you'll get it. Unless you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now there's the word gift. The question I'm asking now and the point I'm making is, what is the nature of that gift? And the nature of the gift is found in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29. The nature of the gift, Romans 11 and verse 29, where it says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Repentance. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. The gift of salvation is without repentance, and the calling of God that I've got is without repentance. Now, what does the word without repentance mean? It's one Greek word. Here it is, amelometomai. A M E L A M E T A M A I. A Amelometomai. The A here is a negative. Now, what's the word melametimai? We're going to see it in 1 John 1.9. It's the word to feel sorry and to weep in repentance. It's not true repentance. True repentance is a different word altogether. It means to change your mind. This one means to be upset like Judas was. He didn't really change his mind about Christ. He was just a bit sorry that he'd done it. And here it means that actually the gifts and the calling of God aren't going to make you sorry afterwards. Praise God. You're not going to be sorry that God called you. You're not going to be in the lake of fire saying, Oh, what a shame. I've really messed this up. Not at all. It says it's without repentance. Some people actually translate it irreversible. Or irrevocable is perhaps the best. Let me pronounce that wrongly. Irrevocable. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You can't revoke them. Not at all. Not one person ever existed who could actually say, I'm sorry, I disagree. I'm sorry, I just disagree with you, God. I'm going to reverse the gift that you've given me and the calling that you've actually given me in my life. Actually, as part of a whole series of things uh, that uh, cause... Uh, The fact that you could lose your salvation to be a nonsense. For example, if you can lose your salvation, what you're saying is, God isn't omniscient. Also, you're saying that if you can lose your salvation, he's not omnipotent. And here, what you're saying is, that you manage to revoke what is irrevocable. God says his gift and his calling is irrevocable. But you say, no, no. There's something I can do in my life which can actually change the whole system. By the way this comes in the context which deals with Israel and where Paul is actually saying Israel was called and received the gift and calling of God right back in Abraham's day and he's saying listen they're going to be God's chosen nation and if only believers had seen that clearly before 1948 they'd never have doubted that Israel was coming back into the land. Many Christians did, many, most Christians did. Very definitely. And the odd ones who believed that Israel as an entity would exist and come back to the position that God wanted them in were very few. But that's what this is saying. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, unchangeable. God isn't going to be sorry. And listen, you're not going to be sorry that you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not going to be sorry that you've received the gift of salvation and the calling of God. Not at all. Never because it's in the nature of God's gift that it's irrevocable. Absolutely. By the way, we see this in, in a beautiful passage in Genesis chapter 3, where um, just after Adam has fallen, do you remember what happens? God puts cherubim to guard the tree of life. Do you remember that? And it says that he does it because Adam, in his fallen state, if he could eat of that tree, would live forever. You see? Now, if something in our life could reverse eternal life and salvation, he would never have put a cherubim to guard the tree of life. Never. He'd say, well, it doesn't matter. Let Adam eat. He's a fallen creature. He'll soon lose it. Not at all. God had to put cherubim guarding that tree, lest the fallen Adam should come and eat and receive eternal life before Jesus died and atone for his sins. Praise God. Such was the nature of eternal life. All right, so there's the next one, the nature of the gift of God. Now we come on to a very important part. Number three, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's important because if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you believe that either the Father's failed, or the Son's failed, or the Holy Spirit's failed. Because it's a work that they are doing for man. All right, so let's see the work of the three of them, shall we? First of all, the work of the Father. The work of the Father. And for that, we'll turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 to 7. Ephesians 1, 3 to 7, which tells us the glorious thing that the Father did for us. Now the Father was the planner of the whole operation. And listen, if he's planned wrongly, if he's got it wrong like the economic planners so often do today, you're finished. All right? The lake of fire is coming up for every person in this room. If God's failed in his planning, there's no hope. Praise his wonderful name. He's omniscient. He hasn't failed. Praise God. And here's what it says, and this is what God has done for you in the past before you came onto the earth, to mess it up. <coughs> Praise God. He decided all of this for you. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us already, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according, notice, he's blessed us according, as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. So what's it all, what's our blessing based on? On what we're doing now. On what he did before the foundation of the world. Praise God. Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We saw that last time. Having predestined us unto the adoption of sons. Predestined us. It's all sewn up by the work of God. You're predestined to be a son of God, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, wherein, what's that? In the grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Now can you see, look at all that, the Father's done all of that before you came onto the face of the earth. Hallelujah. And it's all sewn up from that time on. That's the work of the Father. By the way, if he's got it wrong, you're finished. Let's have another look and see uh, the work of the Father. uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, and this is a great comforting verse. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. All right? Being confident, he says. This is just the next book, by the way. Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, if you're saying that actually it won't be performed till the day of Jesus Christ, you're saying you're greater than God. A, he's not omnipotent, And you're actually hinting that you are. Praise the Lord. If you are, could you come and see me afterwards? I can make good use of you. Praise the Lord. All right? God's power isn't going to fail. We're kept by his power. Praise God. He's the one working in us. And he's going to do the job. And he'll bring it to completion. The day of of Jesus Christ, the rapture. That's the day when we'll be raised to be with him forever. Hallelujah. Meeting him in the clouds. Glory to Jesus. All right, now that's the work of the Father. If he's failed, we're finished. All right, on next to the work of the Son. Now, what's this work of the Son? Well, of course, we've seen it already. He died for all my sins. And by the way, if there's one sin that's been left out, you're in danger. Hallelujah. When it says he died for the sins of the... The whole world, it includes you utterly. Every sin has been diffused. Now, if every sin has been diffused and every sin foreknown, it means that none of it can affect God's plan because his plan has already taken into account that Jesus has died for the sins of the whole world. Hallelujah. But another part of his work, this intercessory work, is actually found in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. 1 John 2 1 and here we get the right balance and the balance that we saw last week John there were two types of people John didn't like one were people who were sinning and sinning and sinning and thinking they were getting away with it which of course they weren't and the other were the holier-than-thou type and he deals with them all in one verse I like John very much for doing that. My little children, I love that phrase, little children. These things write I unto you that ye sin not. His purpose is that you don't sin and I want to say this, you don't have to sin. If you're dedicated and filled with the Spirit every moment of the day, you won't sin, praise God. Your old sin nature will be neutralized. The word destroyed in Romans 6 is a wrong translation. It's neutralized by the Holy Spirit inside of you. Glory to Jesus. All right? You don't have to. He's saying, I'm writing it to you that you don't have to sin. But, what does he say? And if, number three it is of the ifs. Perhaps you will, perhaps you won't. But if any man sin, in a moment of time, it's not habitual sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteousness, the the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous and our righteousness. Now, what's this word advocate? It's the word parakletos, P-A-R-A-K-L-E-T-O-S. The word parakletos. And the word parakletos means one who's called alongside. Now here's the amazing thing. If you sin, what happens? Does Jesus turn his back? No, he doesn't. He rushes to your side. Praise the Lord. Now, isn't that lovely? He comes up and joins you by your side, whatever you've done. Why? Because he's got to be the advocate. The word advocate meant a lawyer, and especially a defense lawyer in the ancient world. He's your defense lawyer. And the word with the father there is the word pros, P-R-O-S. It means face to face with the father. And that's there to remind us that when we sin, Jesus has got to confront the Father with us and with our sin. So our defense lawyer rushes to our aid without having to telephone him and we stand before the Father and Jesus starts speaking on our our behalf. Does he say we're innocent? He does not. He says, they're guilty. They're guilty. They've done it. I know it. You know it. They've done it. But I have died for that sin on the cross. And he presents his atoning work on the cross as the answer. That's why in Revelation 5, when we have a picture of the church in heaven, we see Jesus as a lamb that was slain. Praise God. And it's on the basis of his work that you're acquitted. Oh, how clever this picture is. Because do you know, in John 5 it tells us that the Father has chosen Jesus to be the judge as well. So we come into this rather odd courtroom with Jesus the judge there and Jesus the defence lawyer here by our side. And of course both of them actually are for us. If God before us, who can be against us? You see? I think it's a bit biased. I think we'll be alright, don't you? When we sin? <laughs> Praise God. The judge says, Oh, I think it's, I think it's all right, no need to talk about it and the defence lawyer is standing there saying, I'm gonna talk about it. He's He's done it all right, but my work covers him. Praise God. Now, that's what it means to be an advocate. And Jesus is our advocate. He's called alongside to stand right by our side when a sin actually comes in. Now, if we lose our salvation, it means that one day Jesus has got to stand before the Father and say, I lost the case. I was the judge and I was the defence lawyer and I lost the case. In other words, I failed. I failed. I'm sorry, Father. I'm sorry. you made me an advocate and I, I hand in my robes. I'm not very good. I didn't believe that. Praise <laughs> God. I believe that when we get to heaven, there's going to be such rejoicing. The angels are going to rejoice. Jesus is going to see the uh, seed and the fruit of his soul. And he's going to be satisfied and be happy. Hallelujah. That's the work that the Son has done. Glory to Jesus. Okay? Fine. Now, uh, to see that, Romans 8. Now, actually, uh, I'll cancel that. All right. Uh, rather than go on to Romans 8, I think we're lacking time, actually. I want to see two verses that actually show us the work of the Father and of the Son absolutely hand in hand. So rather than that, let's go to John. John chapter 6, first of all. John chapter 6 and verse 37. Where we combine these, this is before we go on to the work of the Holy Spirit, of course. John chapter 6, verse 37, 38, 39, and 40. Now then, here we go. John 6, beginning verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Giveth again is grace by the Father. And to hi- and him that cometh to me, I will in no wise, or no way we would say today, I won't in any way throw him out. Whoever comes to me, definitely not. Verse 38, for I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Verse 39, and this is the Father's will. Now here is the definition of the Father's will for my life and for your life. Which hath sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. Who is the one that's held responsible? Jesus is. And he's saying, everyone that the Father gives me, my job is to not to lose any of them. If he fails, you're lost. If he hasn't failed, you're not lost. The question therefore is, has Jesus failed? Or has he not failed? Which? There we are. But should raise it up again at the last day. And verse 40 brings it all together. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. And when Jesus died on the cross, he done his Father's will perfectly. That's what we mean by impeccability. He did it perfectly. And that's why my salvation is perfect and tied up. John 10, again, Just after the story of the good shepherd. By the way, what's a good shepherd? A good shepherd's one that doesn't lose any sheep. A bad shepherd keeps losing sheep, here, there and everywhere. You soon sack him. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I haven't lost one yet. Praise God. All right? And we begin verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give... Grace, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And the word never there in the Greek is a double negative. It's one of the most emphatic negatives that you can get anywhere. They shall never perish. Never. What? Never? Never. Praise God. That's the words of Jesus. They shall never perish. Neither shall any. No, it's got man. Cut the man out. It's in italics in most of the Bibles. It doesn't say any man, because that would leave the possibility open that the devil could do it, or a demon could do it. No. And, and uh, he says, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. And by the way, if you say that someone can, you're saying they're bigger than Jesus' hand is. There we are. I used to think, by the way, in uh, my days of non-enlightenment, that actually I was the only one that could decide whether I left God's hand or not, whether I left Jesus' hand. And you see what I'm saying? What I've said before. I'm bigger than God. Right? I've got more power than he's got. That's what I'm saying. In other words, oh, you've decided I'm not going to go out of your hand, but I've decided I am. Well, I'm sorry. You know, if you get a caterpillar in your hand and you decide it's not getting out, nothing will get it out of your hand. And Jesus has decided we're not going out. And by the way, if his hand isn't big enough, notice what it says. Verse 29. My father which gave them me is greater than all. My father's bigger than your father is the type of phrase that's been used here. Who's got the biggest daddy in the world? We have. Right. Let the daddies fight it out. My father, which gave them me, is greater than all. And none, cut out the man again, and none is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. The father and I are one. So you can't get out of Jesus' hands. So you can't get out of the father's hand. Hallelujah. You can't lose your salvation, in other words. To just sum it up rather quickly, that's what he's actually saying. Fine, then we go on to see the third part of the work of God, the work of the Holy Spirit. Alright, because if the Holy Spirit's failed, we're lost as well. It takes one little failing, that's all, and we're finished. Right, to find what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and fourteen, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. <clears throat> and if I may actually quote this from the RSV rather than the AV, this is a terribly translated verse in the uh, AV. Ephesians 1, verse 13. In whom ye also, having heard the word of the truth, the good news of your salvation, in whom, having believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And listen, that happened at the point of salvation. Not, as the AV implies, after, some time after salvation. It's an incorrect translation there. At the point of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Ghost. Sealed. Now, what was a seal? What was it, actually? The seal had very definite meaning. All right? Let me give you three meanings, and we'll just check the last one. First of all, a seal was put on anything that was finished business. In the ancient world, if you finish your business transaction, you used to put your seal on it. And the fact that God's given us the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation means it's finished. The transaction's done, I've got no more to say on the matter. I've already decided to buy them and they're mine. And the Holy Spirit's given as a seal. If you've got the Holy Spirit inside of you, you're sealed. for? Unto the day of redemption. Praise God. We'll see what that means in just a moment. So the first thing means that actually it's finished business. The second thing that a seal meant was ownership. If Oh, that's got my seal on it, but that belongs to me. In the court of law, uh, if it's your piece of evidence, it's got your mark on the bottom, you see? And the Holy Spirit in us is God's mark of ownership. And the Holy Spirit simply stays inside of us. And when the devil comes and tries to claim us as his own, he says, I'm sorry. Belongs to God. Belongs to God. I'm the seer. I'm the mark of ownership. Praise God. All right? Now, the third thing. And let's concentrate just on this quickly. It means complete security. And to see that, I want you, if you can, to turn to Esther and chapter 8. Esther, the book of Esther... Chapter 8 and verse 8, if you can't look it up afterwards, Esther 8, 8, where it just says a nice little phrase, and this is the king speaking, write ye also... If you haven't found it, could you find it later now? Write ye also for the Jews as it liketh you in the king's name and seal it with the king's ring, hot wax put on it and the imprint of the king's ring put upon it. Seal it with the king's ring for the writing which is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring may no man reverse. Praise God. We see that also in the Daniel's lines then where King Darius the Mede puts his seal on the lion's den. And not one person can open it until he does. And the fact that we've got the Holy Spirit in us means that, listen, no one can open it, praise God. It's absolutely God's. And God's the only one who's going to have any dealings in my life. He's going to take me up and I'm his own. Praise God. And the king's seal could never be reversed. And listen, if the king's seal can't, then the king of all kings seal certainly can't. Praise God. Then it goes on, of course, verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. And what's the earnest of our inheritance? The word earnest is the present, modern-day Greek word for an engagement ring. And in the ancient world, when you got engaged, it was like getting married. You needed a bill of divorce in order to break it off. And God doesn't believe in divorce. Hallelujah. All right? And God's put the Holy Spirit in us as an earnest. It's a down payment. It's the first part of our inheritance. And in 1 Peter 1 verse 4 it says, We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us. Incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, kept in heaven. And the Holy Spirit's the first down payment inside of me. Praise God. Well, there we are. Now that's what the Holy Spirit Is doing right now. And that's what he represents. God's seal inside of me. And the earnest of my salvation. That's it. Alright. Now we've got one more work that the Holy Spirit does. Which again overlaps with number four. And I'll define this as we're turning to Titus. And chapter three verse five. For it is the Holy Spirit. Who actually makes us part of the family of God. Titus, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, chapter 3 and verse 5. The Holy Spirit, by the way, is the other parakletos, isn't he? So we've got one parakletos and we've got another parakletos. And he helps us in our weakness over prayer. When we find we don't know how to pray and when we find we can't pray in accordance with the will of God, the Holy Spirit comes in and he interprets the prayer to the Father for us. Hallelujah. He rushes to our aid whenever we need him. And in Titus 3 verse 5 we see this overlapping passage, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And regeneration means rebirth. Every Christian has been born twice. You've been born into a physical family and into a spiritual family. You've got a physical father. You've got a spiritual father. And it's the Holy Spirit that does it. Praise his wonderful name. Um, in 1 Peter and chapter 1, verse 23, we see something of the seed that's actually within us. 1 Peter 1, 23... Where it says, being born again, being born again, notice, by the Holy Spirit, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. The seed that's in me that makes me the father's son is totally incorruptible. And my relationship with my father is incorruptible as well. I am the son of God by the Holy Spirit of God. If he's failed, then I'm not the son of God. If he's succeeded, then I am. The Son of God. Hallelujah. And that links with number four, the family relationship or the kindred relationship. All right? There it is. Incorruptible seed inside of me. And this, of course, tells us that once you're born again, you are a member of the family of God. And God the Father is your heavenly Father from that time on. <laughs> born again. By the Holy Spirit, you are a son of God. Galatians 3.26 says that. By faith are ye the children of God. Hallelujah. By faith ye are the children of God. And listen, I may not like my natural father. I can deny him. I'm still his son. I can change my name. I'm still his son. I can change my looks. I'm still his son. I can change my color. I'm still his son. I can change my nationality. I'm still his son. How amazing. There's nothing I can do to get away from my father. I'm his son. Hallelujah. And so when we come into kindred relationship with father above, there's nothing we can do to get out of it. And you can deny that he's your father even. He's still got to be faithful to you. You can change your nationality in word. And say I'm not a member of the commonwealth of heaven. I'm sorry. You're still your father's son. Hallelujah. You still belong to the great and marvellous family of God. Praise God. Now that's family relationship. And I'll be developing that uh, later on in a later tape. All right. Now they're the four. And the whole of eternal security is based on those four principles. All right. Let me just end by reading a number of scriptures. I'll go right through these. Don't turn to them. Just listen. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 5, 24. But God commendeth his love towards us is in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were righteous, when we were sinners. He died. He did the best for us when we were his enemies. Hallelujah. Okay. Yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, shall we be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Romans 5, 8 to 11. And then 1 John five thirteen. And he writes this to all of us in this room. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. Not know and then think, ah, but I might lose it tomorrow. I know that I've got it. Praise God. That's a glorious message for every person in this room. It's up to him. Up to him, absolutely. And I'm going to end on the last scripture, which is Jude 24 and 25. Now to him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Praise God. Next time, the negative side of the coin. Thank you. Praise the Lord.